Welcome to the Sui Generous Show, your unique perspective on all things criminal injustice and civil rights. With Eric Amaro, I'm attorney Brian Jones, criminal defense and civil rights warrior. Today in segment one, we'll be hitting the hottest stories in the criminal injustice system and your civil rights, starting with the Jacob Blake shooting. Then we'll move on to the allegations against a Blue Lives Matter activist accused of murdering a protester and shooting two others. Finally, we'll touch on the actions of the Court of Appeals in the Scott Peterson case. And in segment two, we'll be exploring the use of psychological experts by the defense at trial. To make sure you don't miss any episodes of our show, subscribe on Apple iTunes, Spotify, or the podcast server of your choice. Follow us on social media, YouTube, TikTok, Twitter, and Instagram at T-L-O-B-J. And find us on Facebook.com slash Central Ohio Criminal Defense. Make sure to check out T-L-O-B-J.com to find out everything you need to know about the criminal injustice system and your civil rights. Erica, did you see in the news this week, Jacob Blake became the latest victim of police brutality as he was shot seven times in the back and likely paralyzed by Officer Rustin Shesky of Kenosha, Wisconsin. I am so horrified by the video of this event. It is, it is terrible, it is sad. There are really no good words to describe it, even though I'm trying. How does this incident fit in with the other police perpetrated shootings that we're witnessing this year? Significantly and fortunately, Mr. Blake survived the seven shots Shesky put in his back, which means unlikely many other police, which makes it unlike many other police brutality incidents. In this case, Mr. Blake will be available to testify about the actions of the man who shot him to a grand jury and later a jury trial. Shesky has been placed on administrative leave and is therefore still receiving a taxpayer-funded paycheck while he awaits his outcome. I mean, that is, that's pretty unbelievable. I mean, how many people get arrested or, or shoot someone and then still get paid by the state? I find that pretty amazing. So the videos of this incident are disturbing. And how will that affect the case against the officer? We see a critical development as the result of the Black Lives Matter protests this summer. Ever since earlier this year, citizens have felt more and more empowered to record police abuse of authority. There are multiple perspectives of this incident from multiple witnesses, which will make it more challenging for law enforcement to close their blue wall of silence around this incident. And Erica, I think you hit on a really critical aspect of this and all of the police-involved shootings and police uh, abuse of authority situations. These officers get to basically go on a paid vacation after they assault and murder citizens. And this harkens back to topics that we've touched on in the past, which is the extensive and honestly excessive power of police unions. 
Erica, did you also see in the news in Kenosha, Wisconsin, a Blue Lives Matter activist, Kyle Rittenhouse, has been charged with first degree premeditated murder after shooting at unarmed protesters, seriously injuring two and killing one of them? I mean, this is another instance of a disturbing video, and it seems like more and more consistently, we are seeing the crowds use their video cameras to, to, to really record what's happening. And, and I think that that's um, a really good thing. Otherwise, well, the same things will happen that have happened in the past where the police can just lie about it. And so, I mean, how is it possible that with all of this video and like with whatever, even without the video, obviously, while the situation was happening, this gentleman was walking, after he shot everyone, gentlemen, he, he walked toward the police cars with his hands up and they just went right by him. How is it possible that that could even happen? I think people across the nation and honestly all over the globe are asking themselves that very question. How is it possible that these police officers witnessed this man's behavior and did not immediately arrest him? It is reasonable under the circumstances to ask for an investigation into the motives and reasoning behind these officers' actions that was seen on film uh, they were seen on film thanking the shooter, providing him with bottled water, and encouraging him to leave the scene with the murder weapon openly carried in his hands. Now, the shooter had an active online presence in the seedy corners of the internet that promote gun violence, antisocial behavior, and white supremacist ideologies. He was also a vocal supporter of the Blue Lives Matter troop, which should alarm every citizen who pays taxes that fund police departments. I think this is yet another example, Erica, of how systemic racism in policing has caused a massive rift in our country. If Mr. Rittenhouse had been a black man, not only would he have been immediately taken into custody, but more likely than not, he would have been shot and killed immediately. Imagine if the protesters were bringing long guns to the protests. I think you would see massive numbers of arrests. You would have confiscation of those weapons. You would certainly not have law enforcement officers thanking the protesters, providing them water, um, and, and encouraging them to go about their business. This is yet another example of the dichotomy of the treatment of people in America. So I heard what you said about him being part of this dark part of social media. And I've even heard that, you can tell me if I'm wrong, but I, I heard that there was an email sent to the police warning them that this was going to happen and that there were like 3000 members that were going to be there. And correct me if I'm wrong, I might be thinking of a different story, I'm not sure. No, I think you're absolutely right. Okay, <laughs> I just wanna make sure, because there's so much going on in the news right now <laughs> that I don't wanna confuse them, but I, I believe that they had a warning and someone saying, hey, we're gonna do this, just stay out of our way or else 
there's many more of us than there are you cops. And I, I, I kind of wonder if that had something to do with it. So, I mean, the question really is, you know, how does blue lives matter affect the situation? Do you think that they had a, a handshake and a wink going on with this, this militia group or I mean, I, I'm not sure if that if it was it was premeditated um, between the cops and and the people that were there causing the crime. Erica, I think it's I think this issue is rooted in the violent imagery and the violent propaganda and the violent uh, speech that is put forth by the Blue Lives Matter movement and the people that support the Blue Lives Matter movement. You, you see all around the, the Punisher skull with the Blue Lives Matter flag superimposed over it. And what that's, the message that that's intended to send is that police are supported and justified in engaging in a vigilante mentality where they get to be judge, jury, and executioner on the side of the street. That is the mentality of the Blue Lives Matter movement, that police should be allowed to execute citizens that they believe to be committing crimes. And that movement is a reaction to the Black Lives Matter movement, which the, and they aim to justify their, the brutality of police under the guise of empathy for the difficult decisions that police have to make on a daily basis. There can be no equivocation between a chosen profession, a voluntary choice to engage in what is admittedly a dangerous job and an immutable genetic trait, the phenotypic expression of race. Blue lives matter, just like the secret law enforcement gangs in Los Angeles forms an us versus them dichotomy between law enforcement and the people who pay their salaries. They're sworn to protect and serve us, not shoot and arrest us. At some point, the public's gratitude for the difficult decisions that police officers do have to make will be outweighed by their impunity and disrespect for life especially black lives. And at that point, reform becomes inevitable. But until then, the fight for true equality in the eyes of the law will continue. I think that that was beautifully said, Brian. And I do wanna just mention one thing, is that like now when I watch Netflix, for example, a crime show on Netflix, there's a new one out there uh, called In the Dark. and as, I mean, it's on its going on its third season, so but it's new to me, and like there's there's so many times in that show where the cops cross the line, and it's it's okay, it's just part of the plot, you know what? We'll you know just pull them over for the you know for their light being out. We have to stop them, and you know the cop pulls them over for no reason, literally breaks the light himself, and then goes over and searches a vehicle. I mean. It, it's just, it feels like it's glamorized and sensationalized by what happens in the movies. And so people just accept it because I think they're bombarded with it all the time. 
And Erica, I will freely admit that I am a, I am a huge fan of The Punisher. I think it's one of the greatest comic book stories ever written. I think the, the story of that character is his growth and the tragedy of his life is, is an amazing story, but it's fictional. And for our real life law enforcement to be adopting that mentality or the mentality of the people on law and order or the mentality of the people from in the, in the heat of the night to, to hearken back to a little bit of an older show, or as you bring up, Erica, the uh, in the dark, or if we look at the behavior of police officers in the HBO TV show, The Wire, you know, all of these shows glamorize this brutal and illegal behavior by law enforcement. And for a fictional story, it makes for great TV. It makes for great movies. But to allow that kind of behavior in real law enforcement is absolutely unacceptable. Yeah, absolutely. And But I think that we've been talking about secret societies within the police and how there's the thin blue line and there's like a lot of secrets are kept and you can't turn your buddy in because then everybody will i guess throw you out of the group you know it's 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 a crazy situation it sounds a lot like high school in some ways except there's dead people that's exactly right erica it's, it's a lot like, it's the kind of juvenile behavior that you see from teenagers, except now we're dealing with people's lives. So the other big story in the news this week was the California Supreme Court overturning the uh, death verdict in the Scott Peterson case. And you may remember that Scott Peterson was convicted of killing his wife, Lacey Peterson, and their unborn son in 2002. I mean, this is just because I'm a mom, especially like listening to that story is heartbreaking and unbelievable. And one would think that if that case was proven beyond a doubt, it sounds like it is, that the death penalty is appropriate. It's, but I mean, that they're, they're gonna, they're gonna overturn that. I mean, it sounds a lot like the Boston bomber case that we just spoke about a couple weeks ago, are there any similarities? There are, Erica. The court in this case lifted the death sentence, uh, but left the conviction and the guilty verdict in place. Now it's up to state, state prosecutors to decide whether they want to retry the death penalty phase of the case. The California Supreme Court found that the death sentence has to be removed because the trial judge wrongfully discharged prospective jurors who had expressed general opposition to capital punishment, but said that they would be willing to uh, impose it if it were appropriate. Now, instead of removing the jurors, the trial judge should have permitted them to be further questioned so their views could have been better explored. An inadequate or incomplete examination of potential jurors can have a disastrous consequence on the validity of a judgment. And while our gut reaction to Scott Peterson's uh, 
behavior that he was convicted of is absolutely revulsion um, at, at his behavior. What this case demonstrates is the importance of procedure. When we're talking about taking away somebody's life, the critical factor in justifying that, what separates the government of the United States of America from the government of a place like Nazi Germany or Imperial Japan or uh, you know, the, the, back, uh, the back jungles of Rwanda or South Sudan right now is procedure, transparency. We don't take people in a truck out to a remote location and summarily execute them. We give them procedure and we have transparency and we hold courts to following the rules when we impose the ultimate consequence of death. So I think that was very well said. Um, just to follow up on this, what did the California Supreme Court decide about the second error on appeal and the question of pretrial publicity? So Erica, this is a topic that gets a lot of my clients fired up. Um, you know, not everybody's as famous as Scott Peterson um, and not every case gets the kind of publicity that Scott Peterson's case got. Uh, but when my client's cases get any sort of publicity, uh, they are absolutely shattered by it. And in, in all honesty, Erica, it's one of the biggest gripes that I have with the fourth estate, with journalism, is the way that they report on the crime beat, disclosing people's names, uh, writing stories as if people have been convicted before. They've even been indicted in a lot of cases. Now, in this case, uh, Mr. Peterson was successful in securing a change of venue. And that in and of itself was a, a massive legal undertaking by his defense team. But ultimately, the Court of Appeals found that the publicity surrounding his case was addressed by that change of venue, moving, from a, moving the trial from Modesto to San Mateo County. Now, there was so much extensive media publicity surrounding this case that the Court of Appeals determined that the case itself was so inherently notable that no change of venue could have affected the fairness of the jurors at the ultimate point of decision. The notoriety of the case alone um, through the developments that were heard on the news and through a variety of channels, the, the, the internet really coming into its own in those days, uh, made it so that any change of venue would not have been effective to uh, generate a pool of jurors uh, more likely to uh, have no knowledge, no prior knowledge of the case. I mean, it would seem that the publicity of a trial would really ruin someone's chances of having a fair trial, but I can see why your clients would be so angry about that because they're not as famous as, as some of these people that are are getting off easy because they're they're famous and everybody knows because the newspapers have talked about it over and over again ad nauseum. Exactly. That's it. Yeah, that's, that, that's one of the main issues is that people who are already famous 
get better treatment in the media. Um, and then the other issue is, is that you know, these matters, while public record, um, are largely private matters. Uh, most crime occurs on an interpersonal level pe with people that you already know, people that are part of your circle. So when that happens, it's often a, a dispute, a disagreement that has now risen to the level of a criminal charge. And in those sorts of cases, publicizing those interpersonal uh, disputes and ruining somebody's reputation uh, really isn't what the media is for. The media is designed for accountability and reporting on uh, these kind of minor criminal matters is, in my opinion, inappropriate. So Erica, it's time to move on to segment two, where, as promised, we're going to discuss the use of experts by defense attorneys at trial. Now, expert witnesses can be a critical aspect of the presentation of the defense case to a jury. In particular, psychological, psychological experts play a key role in understanding the mind of the accused and the minds of the accusers. I mean, that's fascinating. What, a, what an interesting job that they have. What types of issues do the defense psychologists investigate? So defense psychologists investigate things like the mental capacity of the accused, IQ, cognition, uh, ability to understand and waive Miranda rights, ability to understand and assist in their own defense, and their ability to understand court proceedings. They investigate and uh, conduct studies and research on the influence of nature versus nurture and render opinions as to how social circumstances and genetic identity play roles in an individual's behavior. They help jurors and judges to understand antisocial behavior and draw physical connections between brain damage and antisocial behavior. They help jurors to understand false confessions, as we talked about last week, the psychological and social factors that combine to create and cause people to falsely confess to crimes. They help people understand the specific psychological diagnosis and its effect on behavior, such as impulse control, decision-making, and how depression, anxiety, various disorders, and manias can cause an individual to engage in uh, antisocial behavior. All of this is designed with the goal of helping the jury to understand the context of a situation in which an accused made certain decisions. Now, likewise, they also help the jury to understand why uh, a certain witness would engage in falsehoods. When we talk about uh, false allegations, psychological witnesses or psychologists can come in and testify as to the factors that would cause a witness to have false memories, for instance. You know, frequently when we're talking about false allegations, the accuser truly believes in their heart of hearts because they have embedded memories of behavior that occurred. You know, whether it's a sexual assault or a robbery, the 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 accuser in 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 inherits those memories and makes them real to themselves. So helping a jury to understand how a person can have such convincing and vivid memories of an event that never occurred is another key role of a psychological expert. 
Is it only the accused that the expert psychologist will investigate? Expert psychologists, forensic psychologists, will also review the work of government psychologists and their assessors. We'll review the tactics used by specialized investigators like detectives and child forensic examiners for conformity with best practices and errors that affect the reliability of statements that are produced. They can review records of the accuser to identify and diagnose how those affect the accuser's perception of reality. They can render opinions on general issues such as battered person syndrome, Stockholm syndrome, why false allegations arise, and um, they can use these psychological theories in support of a defense theory. And last but not least, they can also help the defense attorney prepare examinations of other wet, other experts and witnesses. I mean, but that's all great, but I don't know about you, but I've heard that psychiatrists are very expensive. What if the accused does not have money to pay for it? United States Supreme Court many years ago in Ake versus Oklahoma held that a defendant has a constitutional right to present a defense. And that includes the constitutional right to have funds that are necessary for an expert witness. If the defendant would not financially qualify, even if a defendant would not financially qualify for a court appointed attorney. What this means is that even if a defendant has retained counsel, the court can still be required to provide funds to hire expert witnesses, such as a forensic psychologist. This is especially true in, in more serious cases where the accused stands to spend significant years in prison, such as murder or sexual assault cases. In those situations, the defendant has his right to have his own expert witnesses to match the expert witnesses that the state intends to present in attempting to convict him. The best defense attorneys have a book of experts ready, willing, and able to come in and assist the defense and will help prepare the appropriate motions with documentary support to get approval of those funds from the court. An expert's reputation is often the most important source of support for such a request. Can you describe an example of what an expert psychologist testimony looks like in practice? One of my good friends and renowned and respected forensic psychologist is Dr. Bob Stinson here in Columbus, Ohio. Dr. Stinson provided testimony in the Reagan Tokes trial that humanized uh, Brian Goldsby, the defendant in that, situ in that case and ultimately persuaded the jury to vote for a sentence of life without parole rather than the death penalty in 2018. In that case, Dr. Stinson had outlined the hereditary and behavioral factors that made Mr. Goldsby's offense almost inevitable. You may recall the tragic and infuriating circumstances of that case. A uh, young college student, Regan Tokes, was abducted, sexually assaulted, and murdered by a man, Mr. Goldsby, who was on an ankle monitor and under the supervision of the Ohio Adult Parole Authority. And yet Mr. Goldsby still received a sentence of life without the possibility of parole. This is evidence and demonstrates the power of social and psychological context to decision-making that jurors do. 
I mean, that's great because it, it sounds like you can get the testimony, but you need to also have an intelligent attorney that is going to use the information appropriately. Would you say that's true? Absolutely. It's, it's incumbent upon a person who calls him or herself a criminal defense attorney to understand what tools are available to the criminal defense attorney, from private investigators to forensic psychologists. I have used even, Erica, in one of my cases, uh, a, a recycling facility manager. Uh, as an expert witness in one of my cases. The key is to find the right witness with the right basis of knowledge that can convey to the jury those facts that the average person doesn't know and understand. Wow, I mean, that's great. And th this is a point where I like to mention that it is so important to have a good attorney that is worth their salt. I mean, you have to have somebody that knows what's going on, knows a good strategy. I mean, not everybody would know to get a really good expert witness and then have the wherewithal to, to use it appropriately and, and help their client. That's absolutely right, Erica. A skilled defense attorney will make use of an expert witness to help the jury make the right decision. Erica, I want to thank you and everybody out there in the listening world for joining us. I want to remind everybody that if you have a question that you want raised and answered on the Sui Generous podcast, please make sure to comment on our post here and we will be happy to address your questions in a future podcast episode. In order to make sure that you are informed about the biggest topics in police and government accountability, forensic experts, your civil rights, and the criminal injustice system, check out TLOBJ.com. Find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash Central Ohio Criminal Defense, and on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at TLOBJ. All over the internet, you can find our information using the hashtags no walk, no walk, no walk, no talk, and no blow. We'll be back next week with a new sui generis perspective on the next big thing in civil rights and the criminal injustice system, as well as a deep dive in segment two of a discussion of the right to a jury trial during the COVID-19 pandemic. Erica, my grandfather always told me, don't do anything I wouldn't do. And to that I add, if you do and you get caught, call me. I'll defend your rights as I'd want mine defended.